Hey everyone. As you know, I'm a huge fan of living a healthy lifestyle, including taking the right supplements. Collagen is one of my favorite supplements. It is the most abundant protein in the human body. As we grow older, we break it down faster than we can replace it. This loss affects our skin, nails, hair, muscles, joints, and tendons, bones, and gut, making us look and feel old. Totem Voss is a wellness company that created a collagen chew for a real-life person, the 78-year-old mother of the founder. As a result, the quality is unrivaled. Totem Voss chews contain equal part deep-sea Icelandic cod, domestic grass-fed beef, and organic chicken bone broth, along with companion ingredients such as vitamin C for a full collagen synthesis. These varied sources address a greater range of collagen needs within the body. Their customers are reporting results with such problems as rosacea, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as improved hair, skin, and nails. Practitioners are finding the juice to be an effective tool in restoring gut health. You can find Totem Voss, that's T-O-T-U-M-V-O-S, at getchews.com. That's getchews.com. Use code DRDIVA, that's D-R-D-I-V-A, for an additional 10% off your first order. A lot of these patients I notice are ones that get stigmatized by the medical system because they have invisible diagnoses and you can't sort of see right away, but there's, there's something below the surface. We treat those patients. We, we try to work on a you know, holistic approach. We try to help with the different foundations of health. We try to integrate cannabinoid medicine like I was talking about before and other types of naturopathic care. Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I am joined by Sunil Agarwal. He is a board-certified physician, in hospice and palliative medicine and physical medicine and rehabilitation and medical geographer and serves as the past chair of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, Integrative Medicine Special Interest Group, and an inaugural member of the Safe Use in Psychedelic Assisted Therapies Forum. He was recently named as top 20 emerging leader by the AAHPM. He's an affiliate assistant clinical professor in rehabilitation medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine, an affiliate assistant professor in the Department of Geography, and an affiliate clinical faculty with Bastyr University. He completed his MD and PhD degrees at the University of Washington in residency and fellowship at Virginia Mason Medical Center, NYU Langone Health, and the NIH Clinical Center. He's co-founder and co-director and practitioner at the Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute in Seattle a multi-specialty teaching clinic and research institute offering cutting-edge care in oncology, psychiatry, neurology, rehabilitation, pain, and palliative care. He also serves as an associate hospice medicine director and an on-call palliative physician for a multi-care health system. He's published over three dozen peer-reviewed articles and book chapters that have been cited over 800 times per Google Scholar. Dr. Agarwal, how are you today? Thank you for joining me. I'm doing very well. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, Diva. Thanks for coming on board. And I'm, as I'm sitting here reciting your your bio, I'm just like, wow! I'm like, I'm I'm in the presence of of a great scholar here. So uh, this is fantastic. I'm I'm so happy to to have you on here and uh, with all the expertise. And we're actually, it's interesting. We're actually fellow physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists. And that's been our foundation. And then we've done so many different things beyond physiatry. And it's, it's interesting where it's taken you and it's interesting where it's taken me. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so happy to meet a fellow physiatrist, um, certified physiatrist who went through residency and, and learned the um, basics of, of function and rest, quality of life and restoration and, and how that involves like not just the physical, but the psychological and the social and the community and, and it involves advocacy and it involves a, a understanding of anatomy and physiology. Like it's very, it's a, it's an integrative field. 
you know, which does allow itself to sort of allow you to kind of go in different directions because that's such yeah. a, it's such a broad area. It's a different approach to medicine that uh, has served me well. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I um, am actually an, an osteopathic physician trained. And so I was at the very beginning, always using my hands and looking at things from a very holistic, integrative approach. So me going into rehab was kind of a natural progression for me and then getting into pain and then getting into what I'm doing now with integrative medicine, holistic care, and, and really look at how to heal somebody from different facets of, of philosophy using Eastern medicine, Western medicine, and like mystical medicine, if you want to call it that. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. That the, uh, my sister is an osteopathic physician, so I, uh, she's four years, you know, younger than me, and so she came in after me, and I was just, I was so happy to see, you know, to learn as she learned in her training, and and she married an osteopath. So I'm, I'm a big fan of osteopathic medicine, and definitely. Uh, there's some amazing physiatrists that were in my residency class that were osteopaths, almost like half of the class was. And, and I think it's um, really, it's wonderful to see how osteopath, osteopathy has integrated in with like allopathy. It didn't used to be that way. You know, it was, it was its own. Yeah. It was a whole process, as you know, about how it took time to even get, uh, you know, uh, AMA in the old days to try to suppress it. And people, you know, there was all this like turf war stuff. And it was nice to see, you know, it's, it, it's a story, actually, a positive story, as long as people still remember and don't end up, uh, you know, it's all the same or, you know, like they lose their unique osteopathic angle, which is, yeah. should not be lost because it is, as you said, very holistic. And, and, and um, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, I know we're, we'll dive into this stuff late as we go, but there was an osteopath named John McPartland. He's a researcher in Virginia, and he wrote this paper in the AOA Journal of the American Osteopathic Association called the, the Endocannabinoid System and Osteopathic Perspective. Oh, wow. Um, and I just wanted to re recommend it for you. Uh, it's open access and it's, he, he kind of distills this, the endocannabinoid system, which, you know, is something I learned a lot about that we weren't taught in formal medical school, maybe bits and pieces here and there, even though it was really being understood for the last 30 years, really, in the late 80s, early 90s, we started discovering this massive signaling system that regulates mood, appetite, memory, inflammation, pain perception, bone growth. It's very, it's very dynamic, and it it's also explains how cannabis works in the body and, and many other things, too, like Tylenol. Nobody knew how acetaminophen worked in the body for the longest time. And so it's pretty, it's a pretty important system, but it taps. I think the reason why it was so suppressed is because it had that cannabis word in it, and that the idea that cannabis could have anything medicinal to it was a politically uh, un, unpopular position, you know, because the government had already decided that it was not useful and and was set up a lot of bureaucracy to to you know make sure it wasn't going anywhere. And here you're getting this information that completely contradicts that notion. So it was. It was kind of a, that's part of the reason why a lot of doctors don't know about it. But it, so his, in his paper, he was trying to teach osteopaths about it and saying, this actually really tracks well with the principles that you learn in osteopathic medicine, which I thought yeah. it was really um, cool to see. Yeah, so, I'll check out this paper. Thanks for sharing that with me. Let's get into some conversation here. So I, I kind of want to understand and, and have our listeners understand exactly with all of what you do at, uh, you know, Advanced Integrative Medical Sciences Institute in Seattle and how you're able to help so many people? Yeah, well, it's a, that's a, a big question, Diva. I think, so we call it AIMS for short, um, AIMS Institute. We, um, we really try and uh, cover a spectrum because we have a lot of different practitioners that have certifications or experience in the areas of oncology, psychiatry, neurology, rehabilitation, pain, and palliative care. Um, and we take an approach that is truly integrative. That means that we have MDs, we don't have any DOs, maybe one day we have um, nurse practitioners, ARNPs. Some of them are psychiatrically trained, some of them general. And then we have naturopathic physicians. And my co-founder a, was a professor, or still is a professor at the Bastyr University, which is one of the largest and oldest naturopathic medical schools in the US. And uh, they train many high caliber doctors, but there's so few opportunities for those doctors when they graduate to do residencies and to expand further because of just just like osteopathy, you know, they're still trying to gain traction. Like osteopathy many years ago, as we were talking, 
they're still trying to gain traction, get licenses in different states. But in Washington state, they are licensed and they can get actually insurance, their insurance credentialing and, and everything as well. So it's, it's a really, um, they're well ahead. And so we have built the clinic around a chance to also train and uh, bring in naturopathic physicians who are skilled and we have, they are skilled in many different areas, including Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, and first of all, the training is essentially the, the integrative guidebook. So everything, herbal medicine, mind, body, spirit, diet, nutrition, exercise, um, like bio, um, uh, biochemical uh, uh, basis of illness and, and well-being. I mean, it really, really is a, is a nice comprehensive curriculum. And I got exposed to it myself when I was a medical student at the University of Washington. We did an exchange where I got to spend a few days over at Bastyr, and then some of the Bastyr students came to our medical school, and it was really, like, it was a wonderful thing to see how they, like, for example, um, you know, we, in the first year of medical school, we learn anatomy and, like, living anatomy, so we check out, okay, where is your xiphoid process, where is your rib start, you know, they were doing those same kind of things, but they would also add in, oh, we're going to use, I'll teach you how to use a flashlight to visualize the sinuses, you know, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't learn that. I didn't learn visualization of the sinuses with light, but you can do something like that. So it was interesting to see how they followed many of the similar topics. But the one thing that they don't do as much that we doctors do, which is going into hospitals, uh, hospital-based care, acute care. And that's really, I think, is, is a process that I, I hope to, you know, we, I hope to provide opportunities in the future. But at any rate, your listeners should know that we bring these kind of doctors in who are skilled and they, they're paired or work in conjunction with these other type of um, medical providers I was mentioning, and that allows us to really expand the scope and ability to treat patients with chronic and serious illnesses. And that's really our focus at the, at the Ames Clinic is, is uh, patients who have conditions treated by these oncology, for example, that really is the, one of the signature areas that I think Dr. Standish, my partner, she's a natu- board-certified naturopathic oncologist. So there's actually, wow. that's one field you can actually get a certification in now because there's so many people that are fed up and want more options in oncology care. And there's so much out there that isn't, you know, uh, not as mainstreamed, you know, uh, whether it's uh, high-dose vitamin C or it's a metabolic approach or it's, you know, there's so many different approaches that are out there that I think... Um, you know, people seek that out. Actually, it's interesting at the NIH, where I spent a year, you mentioned, uh, the National Cancer Institute, um, which is the largest cancer research institute in the world, they were one of the first people that I think started an alternative medicine office. You know, it was that area, it was in cancer care that really, I think, what we call non-conventional medicine, but really it's more like integrative medicine. Um, yeah. So that's where that was sort of established. And so that's been going on for a long time in cancer care due to demand of patients. And so Dr. Sanish and her team of naturopathic oncologists and residents, they can bring in some of this latest information and understanding about genetic tests and, and targeted care and using botanical targeted care. And um, like the metabolic approach that I was mentioning, sometimes intermittent fasting before chemotherapy and how that can, like there's so many things I've learned, medicinal mushrooms, and so anyway, that's sort of what, um, where we can work alongside with a patient's oncology team, primary oncology team, share notes, and, uh, and, and Dr. Sanchez's group makes sure to give references. So those doctors are educated as with, you know, oh, we just, yeah, we, we think they should take this mushroom, but why, would, why is that? There, is there any science to that? Well, it turns out there is. So anyway, that's the kind of thing that's happening with cancer it's care. It's really interesting because this is probably a facility that's unique in its own merit in what it is able to deliver to patients, right? There's nothing else that's out there. You know, you're talking about a hybrid of delivering care that's integrative based. And not only the integrative based, you're having the best of, of both worlds. You're having the naturopaths coming in there, able to provide their expertise from the naturopathic setting. And you have various specialists in the Western medicine field, you know, oncology, psychiatry, you know, rehab, pain, and palliative and it's all geared for, for you know, patients' well-being who are suffering from some cancer. So, you know, this is like, this is how it should be done. And, you know, I, for myself, my own purpose, you know, I wish this was around. How long has it been around, by the way? Uh, you know, we're coming into our third year. Yeah. So um, my, my, my point was, is that I wish it was around six years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer because I didn't know about mm-hmm. this. 
didn't know mm-hmm. anything about uh, about alternative medicine, you know, com- alternative alternative and complementary medicine, naturopathic. I, I had to learn about it the hard way and do my own research when I was diagnosed with uh, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And oh, um, it's it's interesting. It's like now that this exists, I mean, it is a haven for people who are diagnosed with cancer. And because there's the first thing that is thrown at them is, you know, chemo, you know, and immunotherapy. And it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is or how far along the cancer is. I mean, that's just what's thrown at them. That's the, uh, that's, that's the actual standard of care. Right. But you're talking about all these other alternatives that exist. I mean, gosh, high dose vitamin C, that's like, that's unbelievable that you guys are offering that. I mean, I have a, I had a, a client that came to me who has had nine different cancers. It was all the same primary, it was all appendiceal that recurrent over the last 15 years. And I finally, you know, I, I knew some people, a naturopath that offers high dose vitamin C and I, and I sent him over there. He hasn't had the appointment yet because this was a couple of weeks ago when I saw him. And that's the first thing that I, I, wanted to, I wanted him to do. And then I also have a referral that I, I sent him over to the integrative medicine at George Washington University, which are doing some yeah. great things in its university setting, right? So oh, it's great no. that they have the integrative medicine program and they have the tools to, to do some of these uh, new therapies. So it's, it's great that this is what, what is, is offered now. And, I, and it's not mainstream yet, but I think you guys are on the forefront of something great here. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical eBooks and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much, Diva. From it really means a lot hearing it from you as a doctor and and a, a patient who is a survivor of uh, uh, a very challenging, to say the least, diagnosis. Blood cancer is no no joke. I'm sure fatigue was off the charts, and you know it's obviously staging. It's must have been, and that that's the other that's the psychological, emotional, psycho spiritual, which never was of, addressed for me. And that's the thing, and that's why. And when I wrote in my book, I, I was so focused on the, phys- on, the, on the physical portion of the pain. I, I didn't address the mental. I didn't address the psychological. I mean, I ended up having a divorce as a result of this during this treatment process. I, I got separated with my ex-wife when I was going through chemo and the divorce happened subsequently after I went into remission. But I really think all of that could have been mitigated or you know, prevented if I had the right counseling at the time of diagnosis. And my oncologist didn't offer that for me. And I was at Mayo Clinic. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's really, it's a travesty and, and more and more people are getting diagnosed with not only cancer, but chronic conditions. So what the type of things that you're doing there, it should be a template that can be used for treating chronic conditions, not only just cancer, you know, and I'm sure that's what you're seeing. I mean, do you have those types of uh, chronic Yes. Uh, that, yeah. And oncology, I just, you know, it's such a special area an important area. And, and I think Dr. Stanich's work already in this area, she's like 70 years old. She's much, she's a senior doctor and has been working at this for a while. And so I really, uh, I, I kind of came in, I had worked in cancer settings as a palliative doctor, outpatient standard care, but it's a whole other world to really see the role of integrative medicine as a restoration of hope. Uh, less side effects sometimes, safety, and, you know, integrating it with, with standard care. I'm not saying either or. It's, it's got to be a way to kind of find this happy medium. And anyway, so cancer, uh, through that window, um, I've learned a lot to how to work with naturopathic doctors and what they're capable of. And then 
over time, I've started to see also rheumatological disorder patients yeah. like um, yeah. psoriatic arthritis. Uh, you, you know, uh, I've got patients with, uh, I've, you know, the with usual everything. array that you get in rehab medicine outpatient practice. So failed Lyme back disease, surgery yeah. syndrome, oh, yeah, 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 chronic yeah. Lyme disease, uh, fibromyalgia, uh, so something called Elhurt-Danlos syndrome, EDS, uh, which um, maybe listeners might have heard or not heard. It's a hypermobility disorder, which can affect all kinds of tissues, like so uh, hyperflexible joints, but also flexible, flexible interstitial tissue, which can impact your uh, esophagus and cause hernias or even even your your aorta in some cases in severe cases so it's a it's a difficult condition and it's um there's a lot of pain and patients don't always react the same way to standard medicines a lot of these patients i notice are ones that get stigmatized by the medical system because they have invisible diagnoses you can't sort of see right away but there's there's something below the surface you know so we 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 treat those patients we we try to work on uh, you know holistic approach. We try to help with the different foundations of health. We try to integrate cannabinoid medicine, like I was talking about before, and other types of naturopathic care. Cannabinoid medicine, cannabis medicine is a form of natural medicine. I mean, it's it's just a you know subdivision. We pull it out because of histories of what XYZ, but in traditional medicine systems like from India or China or other places, it, it was an important herb, but in the family of herbs. So it shouldn't really be treated so separately. That's kind of, we kind of made that up, uh, but it should be part of the plant medicine community. So we do that. And then this whole idea of psycho-spiritual healing. Um, yeah, let's talk um, more about that. Like what, what kinds of things are you focused on when you are, are using this modality for clients? Yeah, you know, so I think, um, you know, first of all, um, it's, it starts with an assessment to really, to, to, to ask the question. And I think uh, in medicine, in the standard conventional approach, it, you train and you don't, because of limitations of time or maybe limitations of technique or method, you know, you don't even ask about the different realms of suffering, of distress, of well-being too, that, um, that you may not know what to do with or, or deal with, but sometimes it's the most profound, and that has to do with the spiritual realm. And so that means, what is somebody's sense of meaning, their sense of purpose? Oh, what is it that gives them value or gives them hope? Do they feel connected? Do they feel a sense of belonging? Do they feel like, or do they feel uh, disassociated? Do they feel hopeless, meaningless, uh, lack of purpose, lack of of value, um, uh, a sense of deep anger or resentment, or I mean, so you might think, okay, these oh, that's just mental health. No, it's more. Right, this I was going to ask is, that same thing. <laughs> it's sort of the and, and so like the, the WHO um, really has done a good job defining health. It's not just the absence of disease, but it's, it's a state of complete well-being in the areas of mental, physical. Um, social and spiritual well-being, some something like that. It's they, they, it is part of the stool because m- mental, yes, encompasses. You know, you typically think about cognition, mood, um, you know, uh, sleep, um, you know, that kind of thing. But the spiritual is another spectrum that's it's that could encompass the body too. It's really important that you uh, sometimes, in order to take care of your body well you need to have a sense of like I connected with this body. The body has some, some value to me, the body, I feel integrated. Um, or, or in some, when you heal the physical body, your sense of spiritual well-being increases, you know, mental can as well. The mind body disconnection is a whole made up thing as well that we were, we, that whole, all of medicine after Descartes, you know, we kind of thought that was a thing, but it's not. Spiritual is another way to approach the system. And, and it, it's not talked about, as, and it should be in medicine because of the taboos and because of religious trauma. People think that this has to do with like the Catholic church or, or, or some temple or mosque. It has nothing to do with any institution. Spiritual health and well-being is just a, a, an emergent property of of being human. And so I think that's, that's the assessment always starts with, Hey, you know, do you, do you feel at peace? You know, how, uh, do you feel connected? Like what is, there's actually a, a really nice survey instrument I've been trying to use for, it's only available for research settings now. So people who can get, um, 
into a IRB approved outcome study. We have one going or a couple going, but for those patients, I can ask them this thing called NIH heals healing experiences from all life stressors. It's 35 items. They're trying to make it even shorter now. And they really tried to kind of touch all some of these other areas about connection, belonging, sense of higher purpose. There's a few There's a few domains, and it's been validated. I actually participated in its validation when I was a fellow. And I just wanted to say, that's all you have to start with. It's like, if you just have time to ask those kind of questions and create space for it, sometimes it's like, you'll find out that they're fine. And like, you know, I'm really solid there. I really, I feel connected. I really know what I need and want. And, you know, thank you. you know, it's just an acknowledgement of being there. Oftentimes, you'll especially in the kind of patients that we treat because of the traumas they've been through, medical trauma or serious illness, threats. Um, and in, it sounds like, you know, um, what might have happened in your case, like there's, there's a huge gap there. Like I don't even, like they don't know how to put it into words, but it's like a sense of crisis, a sense of just meaninglessness, disconnection. It's, and yeah, part of that can be depressed mood, as we say, but this, this is like kind of a little bit more subtle than that. And let me say a little bit more about it. So what do you do then? Because I think part of the reason we've actually had to get better about this and really start to probe into that is because of the modality of psychedelics and entheogens. It's another, another term I like to use. Um, because we're offering that, uh, at least the way that we can right now with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, ketamine-assisted integrative therapies, that forces you to really have a deeper understanding of spiritual health because if you because these medicines by their nature trigger a change in the in the standard what they call the default mode network the way you're normally operating your normal awareness of self and other um, it dissolves um, for a little while and that can be a very powerful like frightening um, but also extremely therapeutic if it's properly um, prepared for um, and, and I think the only way to really understand how the, what those are doing to people is to really understand, to get a sense of their spiritual um, well-being, meaning and purpose and connections. And, and so we now, when we ask about that and we offer this therapy, which is an excellent modality, I want to share more about it if there's time, but I think it, these kind of therapies could actually end up doing a lot of things uh, on multiple levels, the, the physical body, the mental body, you know, and certainly the spiritual health. So yeah, I'd like to know more about that in terms of the different medicines are you using uh, to help, you know, someone explore spirituality or heal through spirituality. You know, ketamine is something that you probably are using as well as cannabis. So, you know, what roles do they have in, in, in treating your patients? And if there's other things like psilocybin, I, I don't know if that's something that you guys can use in the hospital setting at this point under, unless it's under a research label. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, we're, we're trying to, the laws, um, the restrictions and regulations I really have, have made it challenging. This whole class of medicines has been kind of under official lockdown for, you know, 40 years or 50 years, actually, if you, uh, if you go back to 1970. So it's actually, we're in the 50th year. Yes, last year was the 50th year of lockdown, formal lockdown. I mean, it's really, uh, it's an unfortunate thing. And, but at the same time, like, the society and culture wasn't ready for this level of, of work. And there was a worry that these medicines were getting uh, out of hand and, you know, not controlled. And I think, you know, I think that's also, it was overblown because these type of medicines and modalities, it's not like humanity just discovered these 50 years ago. They're actually more like 50,000 years old. And they go back to really the earliest forms of healing that many uh, hunter-gatherer societies, something called shamanism, you know, they're very much employed in shamanistic medicine practices that are still active today in in many um, traditional societies that have maintained traditions that go go far back. And uh, so, really what we lost was the ability to really properly honor these medicines and hold them properly. You know, that means preparation, adequate screening, preparation, support during and support after. And if you do that, then, you know, this is, this becomes a really, you know, and it's true with any strong medical intervention, you know, you can't just, you know, there's, there's many things in medicine that we do that really need a good preparation, different surgical procedures come to mind or electrical, electrical procedures that we do to people's hearts or things like that. They're pretty intense and you, you need a good preparation and aftercare for it to really be safe and effective. And the same thing is true with this medicine. So um, anyway, we, I think what we have been left with is ketamine because it was never banned. And um, it was only made in the sixties or late fifties, early sixties by Park Davis. But it turns out that we kind of 
fell into a uh, created in the lab a class of medicine that really does tap into that default mode network and, and sort of disrupt it for a little while if you at the right dose it's also used as an anesthetic it's the most commonly used anesthetic in humans in the world so it's widely used in anesthesia because it's very safe and you don't have to put anybody on a breathing machine you know um ventilator when when they're under the highest dose of it because it doesn't suppress the respiratory drive so that's very very helpful uh, anyway so it's very safe it's on the who list of essential medicines it's used in children and in animals but at low doses below the anesthetic dose you can kind of get into some of these areas where you're awake but you're in a different state of consciousness or awareness and and that's sort of the side of ketamine that's newer in medicine, I would say. I think it actually was pioneered in the 70s uh, by a doctor, a Mexican doctor named Salvador Roquette, um, whose name should, isn't as spoken as much about, but really was the first doctor that, that I know of. And he went to the uh, only national psychedelic research. Can you believe the United States had a federally funded psychedelic research institute into the mid-70s in Maryland at the Spring Grove uh, Institute? Yep, clinic. Yeah, yeah, it's not too far from where I live. Okay, look at that. So yeah, there were pioneers there. Um, and, and so this Dr. Roquette came there and showed them. Uh, I know the doctors who were there at the time, and they've told me these stories, and there's a lot of histories about this. They were also working with LSD there and psilocybin and other psychedelics. Um, but uh, he was able to show how ketamine could be well integrated into that as a sort of a secondary medicine or a preparative medicine. And and the other medicines that, uh, you know, are now coming back, you know, right now, psilocybin is still Schedule One only through research a license, as you said, uh, can you get it. But um, with an attorney, um, I have started an effort to petition the government for compassionate access called Right to Try. There's a Right to Try law that we have in the country, which was passed in 2017, 2018. And almost, I think, like, almost every state in the United States also has a Right to Try law. And they were mostly passed unanimously by the houses of the states. Like, so it's a very well-supported law, which says if you have serious illness, terminal illness, advanced illness, uh, and your doctor thinks that a medicine could help you, that has already done a phase one clinical trial. So it's been proven to be safe or shown safety data. Uh, and it's still in development. So it's still a ways off until you can get it uh, through FDA channels. But because your time is limited, you have the right to try that medicine now. That's a, that's a federal law and a state law, like I said. And DEA said, oh, sorry, psilocybin doesn't apply because we got this other 1950-year-old law, which, it, which is the way we, we, we treat it. And we think that's not right. So we are um, petitioning uh, the court of the Ninth Circuit, the, the federal Ninth Circuit Court, to review that. And oh, nice. we're, we're doing our, our, our arguments this, this month, actually, the, or the, the briefs are being submitted this month. So if that goes through, then I will be able to get psilocybin for some of these two of my patients that I petitioned for that have um, right. um, different forms of cancer. So, yeah, it's um, but ketamine. I treated them with ketamine, and that that, that did help them. There's certainly there's a, a there's, you know there's always certain st every medicine there's different strengths and and capacities mm -hmm. and. When you say you're, you're helping them, I mean, in what way is the ketamine helping these patients who are, you know, who are at, if not at end stage cancer, but they're certainly in some stage of, of cancer when they're in that hospital setting with you? Yeah, and, and I should mention, um, Diva, we, we don't, we're in an outpatient setting. Uh, it would be nice to have a hospital setting. One day, um, we'll get more into inpatient settings where patients really need this, the nursing homes and, 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 and palliative care units and hospice units. I'd love to see that. Um, but uh, in our in our clinic, we, we create a space uh, where they uh, have these treatments, um, which are well well decked out, and, you know, art and and, and comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and we play really good quality music that's like nonverbal and and um, allows so a lot of music therapy. And as I mentioned, all the preparation pieces. So, what we what we're trying to achieve for these patients is a sense of okay. You, um, you're dealing with a stress of illness. You might be dealing with spiritual distress, mental distress, depressed mood. Um, you know, these things impact your ability of your body to fight cancer and to be well, and it impacts your ability to tolerate further treatments and, of course, your ability to further function in your life. And all of these things we know affect your immune system because of something called psychoneuroimmunology, and all of that can impact how, you know, your body um, handles this um, foreign and, and, you know, excessive uh, tissue growth 
Um, so our idea is, well, let's just try to work on healing. Like, can you, you, you want to have a time out from ordinary reality? You want, do you, what is your, what would be your intention if you sort of wanted to go back and, um, you know, um, rewire yourself? What would you want to wire in? You know, so that it's, there's like, there's a part, there's an aspect here where the patient is invited to in, state what their goal is, what their wish is, what their intention is. Because there's, I think there's sort of a, that that's sort of the, you know, like they say attitude makes a difference. And when you, when you want to run a marathon, if you go and say, oh, I'm not, I don't know if I can do this, you know, I'm not going to really, uh, I'm not good enough versus like, I really can do this. Your body will, it literally makes a huge difference in terms of your whole physiology. So that's, we're really trying to um, bring that out, elicit that. Um, and then um, when people have the experience, um, you know, making sure they're safe and comfortable. So, because what, what's really going on here, there's something called a polyvagal theory, which is a really wonderful um, area. I, if you haven't looked at our readers or listeners to check out, Stephen Porges has talked about that our nervous system really tries to deal with threat. You know, it's an evolutionary thing, how to deal with threat, um, safety, danger, like serious life threat. And we go through these different stages. You know, everyone knows about fight or flight. And there's also freezing. And freezing is like this, like the reptilian response. I'm going to be eaten by this creature, so I'm just going to play dead. You know, and, and those things are actually wired into our system. And the other one that's most evolved, we don't talk about, is called the social nervous system. And that is the one where you can really play and you can connect and you can be creative and involves people looking at people's faces and the face-heart connection, which is the vagus nerve is involved in. That is really the place you want to be when you're trying to heal, grow, restore, not in fight or flight or extreme life threat. And, and so what we're trying to do is create that safe environment so people can feel comfortable to tap into those other autonomic you know, response systems. We call this, uh, those are neuroceptions of safety or danger. And so when you do that, uh, if you give people an opportunity to sort of let the dissolve the default mode. The defenses do go down, and it, you might you might get an, get be able to send that all clear signal in really deep. That's sort of the psychology of it. If I would try to put it in a kind of a contemporary um, psychology of the, the threat, because the cancer or these illnesses they represent this deep existential yeah. threat. It's essentially a a chronic history of having your nervous system uh, maxed out. I mean, that's kind of one of the contributing factors of of developing cancer in, in my opinion. And uh, it's, it's, it's essential to have the client or patient learn to calm their nervous system so that any type of intervention can work. And so it's interesting so that, you know, you, you're using the ketamine for that purpose is to really calm that nervous system, reset that default mode network. And then I'm assuming that in addition to that, you know, you're really trying to plant seeds in the patient's brain know of of nourishment positive thinking you know mindfulness um and those types of things kick in and, and i guess in essence with the conventional western medicine and then with what you're doing with the spiritual medicine and then in addition to the naturopathic it's just hitting it from all different angles to see if the patient can heal <laughs> well beautifully put absolutely i think you're you're uh, exactly hitting it and because what there's there's so many things that so once you the, like the experience can be quite frightening. It can be quite beautiful. You know, like I said, it's short lived with ketamine, with psilocybin, it's many more hours and other ayahuasca, even more hours. But these all, the whole idea is that once you're in this state, maybe, uh, and we don't know everything that's happening. I mean, there's like a, all kinds of research about the entropic brain hypothesis or states of order and disorder. It's a very complex thing happening. But whatever is happening, people describe visions. They describe, you know, traveling or they describe mm -hmm. really dissolving into nothingness or and becoming a point. Um, but you do come back, but you come back different. And, and there's also research like um, neuroscience, hard, you know, for the hard-nosed data people, NIH has funded um, studies where in animals where they, sh you know, will, get, will stress rats out for like 30 days. And uh, or I think you know, it was a mouse study. And then they um, give them ketamine in some groups, some groups they don't. And they dissect their brains after this, uh, you know, this is quite, quite a, lot, a lot of animal loss here. But it's very, the studies show that you have new neurons being generated that next exactly. day. Exactly. And the neurons are actually connecting to the, it's neurogenesis. It's this brain is post, post ketamine. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Post, post, and post psychedelics. Several, yeah. several psychedelics. Yeah, these are yeah, exactly. some people call this psychoplastogens. Mm -hmm. So you're not. Yeah. This, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? It's a term, neuroplastogen, psychoplastogen. You're actually, you're, people use an example. I like to use the example of glass, heating up a glass, it becomes more moldable. Um, some people use metal annealing, re-annealing. So that's what's happening. You're doing, and then you can lay down new pathways. And I think that's what the integration piece is so critical. 100%. Is that after aftercare, and that's what uh, what we hope to see happen. And then you know, uh, the psychology, positive psychology, you were mentioning. I think that's wonderful. There's a lot of really good research now in the psychology of awe. A W E. You know, what does awe give people when you have a sense of awe? You know, and it's not. You don't have to like see the Grand Canyon, you can have awe in everyday life, simple things. You know, it's not just like this great grand view from the top of like the Eiffel Tower or something, which is wonderful, don't get me wrong. But um, um, awe can be done, can be created with the help of these medicines. I call them awesome, awesome medicine. You know, this, this is kind of an awe experience. But what happens in awe, and even they do awe research in a lab, uh, psychology labs, it really depends on what happens just before and what happens just after what your mind can, because you can use awe and get people to suicide bomb or, you know, do terrible acts of violence. Awe is a mm -hmm. tool to hypnotize people, you know, in some ways I should say. So we're really, we, we have to be very careful with this type of medicine because it can, people are really open to suggestion and that's where the doctoring, the healthcare, the, um, the can unconditional abiding presence and really letting patients sort of guide the path. This is a really powerful thing. And that's mm -hmm. what I think is happening. And it's very fascinating. It's very fascinating what you're doing. And, and what I wanted to find out, two things, was one, with the dosing of ketamine, I mean, are you, uh, are you able to share what you're dosing? Are you doing an escalated dose? You're doing a one-time experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is, this is um, we, we, uh, I've, I've learned this from other people who've written about this and published this. So the, the standard approach that I've learned uh, the, you know, and there's and not everything is standard for people, but you know, ketamine is an interesting drug. There's low dose, micro dose, all the way to these macro doses of saying anesthesia, and there's different regimes. And so, not everybody, not everybody is right for everybody. You know, in terms of one size fits all. But in general, like the rule of thumb we've used is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Wow, uh, you're as, going that high. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that that and that's a that's an intramuscular. Injection. If you want yeah. to get that psych, uh, that psychedelic effect, dissociative anesthetic psychedelic effect, you've got to go into that realm. The lower dose, so the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, where I, again, I did some of my training at NIH, they were using the 0.5 milligrams yeah, per kilogram. That's pretty much been the standard for even in the ketamine papers. You can read about their uh, discussions of how they use ketamine for their clients, and it always started at 0.5 mix per keg. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I actually, and we have another ketamine treatment we do um, with, with IV with magnesium and that we're doing 0.3 mix per kick there. And that's an IV dose. So, uh, and you know, the absorption is a little bit less when you do intramuscular versus IV. So those are the factors, but, um, and those have purposes and roles for sure, but that's not a psychedelic therapeutic model. It's a, it's a more of a, what we call a psycholytic or pharmacological model, which is it can be really effective and helpful, but sometimes if you really want to tap and get into some of those deeper issues around existential uh, distress, and um, I think some of the maybe potentially more powerful antidepressant and neurogenic effects, um, I think tapping into those more mystical experiences potentially, and this is also being borne out in the psilocybin research that Hopkins and others are doing now, that there seems to be some value in having an experience that sometimes can be quite awesome or, you know, a little bit more. And, but at the same time, I'm not like, Oh, everyone needs a high dose and every, you know, more is better. I think it really depends. And sometimes people need to work up to that or it's a process. And because this, this is not a one-time thing. This is, you do this, you go through a cycle and then you go through another cycle and you go through another cycle. Maybe we say three or four cycles like this, because it takes time to rewind, rewire and, you know, uh, things that you say are constant or going on over lifetimes or decades, especially we take care of serious PTSD in our clinic as well. People with developmental trauma, um, you know, uh, different forms of abuse growing up or, or other traumas that have happened to them in their lives, a serious depression, and of course, these illnesses, these life-threatening illnesses. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly something that takes a little time. But I think those, that dosing regime, you know, is it's sort of, that, that's sort of, I think, where you can get more reliable, more mystical. Buck, yeah. yeah. 
And then, you know, I, I know we're so much to converse about and uh, running out of time, but the last thing I really wanted to chat about is actually two things if we have time for this, but one is, is like, what is your success rate, you know, using this approach versus the conventional approach, which we talked about earlier is just, you know, a combination of chemoimmunotherapy or, you know, even radiation um, and excluding all these other modalities that you're doing. So I, with what you're offering, you know, it's, it's the best of the best of Western medicine has to offer. And then you're infusing and peppering it with some Eastern medicine and spirituality. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious as to, at the I, success rate. You, you're, you're asking the right question. And, you know, I don't know yet. Uh, I have an outcome study. Dr. Stanish, my partner, has started the Ames Cancer Outcome Study. Uh, they've enrolled some 80 or 100 patients at this point. Uh, and we're going to find out, you know, uh, looking at disease-free survival, overall survival, That's those are her, her she has these hard endpoints. Um, she's done previous work before when we weren't incorporating ketamine, uh, but doing naturopathic care in um, some uh, areas of, I believe, advanced, uh, I think it was some lung cancer uh, she's published. I have to look up the data, but it was very, uh, her responses in her small cluster were above or beyond what randomized controlled trials and those types of lung cancer had had found she's published that but i think um we really still we we want to we want to check ourselves on that and that's why we have an irb approved outcome study uh through seattle university uh, irb and we're trying to enroll people and say hey you know we don't know some of these things these are experimental many of the things that we're doing but we want to see we want to get your permission that we can track your data down the road and report on that so it still remains to be seen i think um uh, can, the cancer especially. Um, my, one of my resident doctors is going to be presenting at the ONC ANP meeting, which is like the Oncology Naturopathic Association in the United States. Um, and there's several of the cancer patients who've gone through ketamine therapy. She's going to be just showing some of their data, at least what we do know in terms of their mood score changes, PHQ-9, or it's like depression, anxiety, and then if, if there's any data on their sort of cancer course. But some, we've only been around, like I said, you know, really Just October years, 2018. Yeah. So it's I mean, still... I, I mean, it, with all the things that you're doing, I mean, you're implementing strategies that's, that's going to starve the cancer with, with your intermittent fasting and fasting technique, right? And then you're, you're doing high-dose high dose vitamin C, then you're infusing spirituality with this. I mean, it's like, how can it not get better? It's just, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, 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 I mean, obviously, and then the whole idea is, well, it may not get better because you're uh, not taking into consideration the patient's mindset, but you're, t that's, that's the whole process. That's what you're doing with the, with the psychological uh, counseling and, and, and the planning of the seeds so that you're actually allowing and teaching the client and patient to have a positive mindset. And then that, and that in of itself can be the biggest predictor of success. Wow, that would be cool. And yeah, that sounds like a re spoken like a rehab doctor right there. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that truly is something that we we talk about. You know that 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 how, how and just like people say self-rated, like the how how well are you? Like there's all these fancy like psychometrics and quality of life metrics, but it's like the self-rated health actually ends up being one of the best predictors of True survival. Is. And you know, it's so it's I think you're you're onto something there and. And I certainly, I'm not like a, I, I think it is, it's, there's no such thing as a panacea. I think, you know, with the complex illnesses like cancer, um, multifactorial solution, you know, and, and you really want to bring the best of what we, what we have, researchers have. And, yeah. and I think that uh, I, I, my hope, and, you know, like hit me back, you know, in a, in a year and maybe we'll have some uh, preliminary data um, yeah. to share. I'd love to, love to hear more about what you're doing and, and, and some of these outcome studies. I'd I, I really can't wait for that to come out. And uh, yeah, for our listeners, I mean, uh, I'd love to, you know, understand what's the best mode for people to find more information about you, the clinic that you work at and the amazing things that you're doing there. Oh, thank you, uh, Diva. I think anyone can reach us on Google, you know, Ames Institute um, and AIMS. Um, and you first hit is this our, our website, amesinstitute.net. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you can look at, once you get to that website, you can see um, the news section. And we have like a blog of different um, articles we've been publishing or talks we've given um, or information. There's a lot, there's a lot of different things hidden there on the website. And then if they will, if patients are interested, and unfortunately we're only licensed in Washington state, most of our providers yeah. are state of Washington licensed. Maybe 
that'll change in the future. Or, but um, I do, I do, uh, we do do tele-education opportunities so people, we can give people some information wherever they are in a different state, uh, educate them, and um, maybe try to give them some guidance from, from afar. Right. We do telemedicine regularly. And then, you know, inpatient, coming to our offices, certainly, and then we can practice. And we take many major forms of insurance for the areas that we can cover, including Medicare, which I'm really excited about because Medicare covers uh, a lot of patients with cancer actually are in their six, over 65, you know, and um, I think that, uh, and not very few of them get access to naturopathic medicine. Exactly. Um, and so through incidental services billing, which means that Medicare allows me as a Medicare credential doctor to have other patients, other providers who aren't credentialed take care of the patients um, awesome. if I'm supervising. Uh, yeah, that's why I just wanted to let your reader, listeners awesome. know that, that we, we can try to work with them. For my own reference, and it might be applicable to some people who are listening, but if I want to refer someone to you who lives who doesn't live in Seattle, is there a program that's available where they can stay a duration of time and undergo yes. a, a, like a, a, I don't know, like a, a package, like a five-week package? I don't know if that's what to, that you offer. Yes, but. We, we have developed those for patients. I've had patients who come, come from the East Coast. Housing, you know, it's, oftentimes people will find their own Airbnbs. We do have a discounted rate with um, one of the um, Marriott's hotels that's in the area. Yeah. They, it's on our website, and they actually have a shuttle bus, or they did pre-COVID. I don't know if it's up and running again, but they made it easier to come back and forth. Uh, and, you know, really, if people wanted to do that, we would pre-cook that, you know, try to do some remote visits and really understand what the need and sequence that they would want in terms of, you know, by, and make, making sure we have space because we, we, we need to kind of, uh, we, we're a smaller practice, but we're hoping to have more spaces. But um, we, would, we would probably, if a cancer patient would need to see our naturopathic oncologist, get a, a full assessment um, and then, you know, maybe get also a medical screening if they wanted to do the drug-assisted psychotherapy. And then we would say, okay, this is kind of how, what course you could follow here. Here's the blood work we'll need. Here's the vitamin C or other types of high interventional therapies we would do. Um, here's the course of ketamine therapy and maybe cannabis education as well. And, and we, could, we could space that out over, you know, you said a month or four to six weeks, depending on, on right. uh, what the need is. Yeah, I was talking about that specific patient that I had that had the recurrence of the same primary appendiceal cancer. So right. it might be something that I can refer him to you and we can talk offline um, about this, but that's good that you have that available for people who don't live in that, in that vicinity. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for being on the show today. And I appreciate all the insights and I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you to see what other things that you have in the pipeline that you're going to be able to offer and and also these outcome studies. So it's been a really honor and pleasure to, to, uh, to have you on the show. Dr. Nagula, I feel the same way. Thank you for sharing your um, a platform, for creating this platform and, and giving me a chance to, to come and meet you and talk to your listeners. Um, I hope to do it again in the future. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome.